Psalm 23, how these two fit hand in glove. Amazing. Psalm 23 is where we're starting. Thanks for being here this morning. appreciate that you would take the time to come and worship for those who are visiting, and even our church family, that you come back week after week. Thank you. We trust that what we have prepared these next few weeks will be encouraging to your lives as we go into a psalm that you're very, very familiar with. Let me start off by just giving you a story. An individual that some of you have read his book, and I've used it a couple different times for illustrations. His name is Gary Richmond. He was an intern at the Los Angeles Zoo. He's a believer, he's written several different books, and he spent a couple years there as an intern helping out at the zoo. And he talks about some of the different ministry, some of the different animals that he worked with, and how then those dealing with those animals, he learned life lessons. Well, one of the stories he's talking about the red-tailed black, the red-tailed hawk, that these creatures were there. In fact, what he's talking about in the story, let's set the scene before I read a little bit to you. He's talking about how he went there, and there's a cage with 15 of them. Now, this isn't a display cage. Rather, this is in the back area of the health center there at the zoo. And these birds are there, and they're all, they all look healthy. None of them are, are treated for any uh, injuries or anything of that sort. And he asked the main guy in charge of that building, he said, why are they here? He says, well, these birds are here because of trials. He says, what do you mean they're here for trials? He says, well, they were captured illegally and they're held here as evidence until the trial for whoever captured them. He said, well, that's unfair. Richmond's response, so that's unfair. These birds are kept in captivity when they were totally innocent, but they're waiting. He says, how long have they been here? He said, well, some have been here for years. The majority will probably die here because the trials have been put off, put off. We never know what's happening in the court system, and so sometimes they just end up dying here and they're never released because they're evidence, waiting until the trial. Well, Richmond is thinking, he's a child of the 60s, and in the children of the 60s, you always have a cause. And so he in his mind said, I have a cause. The cause is to free these birds. But he's an employee. And so to free the birds, you know, could be a big problem. Well, he thought this through. What can I do? What can I do? How can I do this? And he went and looked at the employee's handbook. And if you ever by accident left a cage door open for an animal that wasn't injured or an endangered species or an animal that could do harm to people, then it was just a reprimand verbally and on your record. You couldn't get fired or anything. So he thought his cause is worth it. But he has to plan it right. Well, all the different directors and all the heads of the different departments and the people in charge over all the interns, they would have a monthly meeting that would take two or three hours, and the only ones that would wander around the zoo before it was open on those days were the interns. So he picked his day, and he's going to release the birds. He tells his story. Tuesday came, the supervisors left for the hospital area. I made my way out to the cage, slipped out the lock from the hasp, and left the door wide open. I looked around, and there was no one in sight. I slipped back into the health center and set about my duties with profound sense of fulfillment, an abiding feeling of satisfaction. I had freed the birds. After one hour, I decided to go and check the cage. Astonishing. He says, disbelief, wonder, confusion. They reigned supreme as I beheld all 15 birds still in the cage relaxing. There was still time, however. Perhaps the red tails just needed some inspiration. Well, I knew that that would be inspirational, so I, well, I knew what would be inspirational, so I ran into the cage, waving my hands, growled like a bear. That inspired them all right. They flew out of the cage and landed 10 feet from the door. The look that they gave me was pitiful. They were confused. It was clear to me that they wanted back into the cage. I yelled at them, don't you see the sky? That's what you're meant for. I began feeling a little self-conscious inside the cage, so I stepped out to finish my address. What's wrong with you birds? You're not chickens. You're majestic birds of prey. You hunt for food. God gave you a purpose. Now go, fulfill it. I decided to go back to the health center after my pep talk. Maybe their instincts instincts would take over and they would feel some primal urge to command the wind. I left for 15 minutes and then returned. Not one bird had felt any urge to leave. In fact, some had walked back into the cage. With 15 minutes to go, I gave up. I don't mind telling you, I was a little bit more than deflated. I ended up herding all the birds back into the cage like goats. Where had I gone wrong? I had approached their problem anthropomorphically, which is a fancy way of saying I was projecting my thoughts into the minds of the birds. The birds had not been sitting in the cage longing to be free. Those were my thoughts. They had long since become 
become satisfied with just waiting to be fed. No famines to suffer. No droughts to survive. No territorial battles to enjoin. It wasn't all bad. I felt bad, but they didn't. The reason I felt bad was because by caging them, we had taken something from them that they needed to be noble. Their purpose. God had created the red-tailed hawks to hunt rodents and reptiles. Few birds can equal their elegant flight or fearless pursuit of the prey. This group of birds had been robbed of their ecological purpose. We weren't even letting the zoo patrons appreciate them. That's what was bothering me. I thought a little bit more about the freedom as I finished my responsibilities that day. I concluded that freedom was the ability to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. I further reasoned that every saved man had an interesting distinction. Unlike the animals, saved man can never be kept from fulfilling his purpose. He is always and in every circumstance free to perform the function for which he was created. Saved man's purpose is to love and to serve God. Are you fulfilling that purpose for which you were created? Or have you become satisfied with the ways of the world, have you left your freedom to choose to be bound by this world? Now what he's done is he's done something very simple. He's taken the animal kingdom and he's drawing some spiritual truth to that. He's not the only one who did that. If we go all the way back to Psalm 23, you find that this is exactly what David is doing. David is taking animals and drawing an analogy between the animals and God Almighty. And he's going to make himself in this passage to be the animal that we're all familiar with. He's going to talk about him being the sheep and God being the shepherd. Now in order to understand the entirety of the text, you have to understand it's not just a singular psalm that was penned and put there all by itself. Actually, Psalm 22, 23, and 24 were all a trilogy. They were put together to give more of a sense of what's going on. In fact, if you back up, you see some things about how he's going through. All three of the Psalms describe to a degree the ministry of God the Messiah or Messiah God and how he interacts with individuals within his kingdom. In Psalm 22, let's put it this way. In Psalm 22, he's talking about Messiah, God, and how he is going to suffer and sacrifice for his creatures. Go down to verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember that ever being spoken elsewhere in time? Do you remember when? At the cross, when Messiah is calling out. Go down to verse 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord. Again, this is a messianic psalm talking about how Jesus Christ, Messiah, is going to sacrifice for the individuals who are going to be a part of his flock. Chapter uh, Chapter 22, verse 16. The dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands, my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare at me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vest for my vesture. And so this is a passage that's talking about Jesus Christ and his suffering. Same thing he talks about in John 10, that he loves his sheep and he as a good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. And in this text it's describing from our perspective what Jesus did for us in the past. How that Jesus died for our sins. He gave his life so that we could be freed from the penalty of sin. If you're here today and you've never fully understand that, let me just pause for a moment and to bring you up to speed. Jesus Christ did not come just to be a good example. Jesus Christ did not come to just start a church to get it rolling and then us do our own thing. Jesus Christ came so that he could give his life a ransom for many. So that sinners could be redeemed. Well, you and I are sinners for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As such, we are trapped. We are caged by sin. We are held in bondage. And that bondage is going to end us up in hell unless we are freed from the penalty of sin. Jesus Christ is on the cross. And he says that they have, they have beheld me on the, my bones and they're parting my garments. He's doing all that suffering so that he could take our penalty for our sins, whether it be lying, cheating, gossip, anger, immorality, wicked thoughts, you know, murderous thoughts, whatever it may be. He's taken all the punishment for all those sins upon himself on Calvary. And at a point where God, looking at him, turns his back on him and he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's become sin for us. And after he has paid and suffered that separation from God, that penalty, that imprisonment, the same amount that would be upon us, but he took upon himself in his, in his deified form, he was able to, to suffer that infinity, that eternal damnation at that moment in separation. He pays it. 
And he calls out at the end of his suffering. He says, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He says, I have paid it all. And gives his life so that we can have freedom, we can have forgiveness. Then those of us who have seen that and understood that, and by his mercies and grace, somebody has shared that with us, we come to a point where we call upon him and ask him to forgive us of our sins that cost him his life. Ask him to give to us that which he paid for, eternal life and forgiveness. And when we call upon the name of the Lord, he says that he hears us and he gives us that forgiveness and gives us eternal life so that we can one day be in heaven with him. And we look forward to that point. But then Psalm 23 picks up what happens next. Psalm 23 talks about the care of the shepherd, which we're going to talk about, how Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd, that he cares for us, that he never leaves us nor forsakes us, as he describes himself in Hebrews 13. It's talking from our perspective what is happening in our life now. That we have this Lord who is our shepherd, that he takes care of us, that he leads us beside the still waters. How he is ministering to us right now, helping us and giving us all the assistance we need to live above sin. Not to be captivated by it, but rather to live a holy life. And then Psalm 24 picks up the future. Psalm 24 portrays him as coming again. It talks about how he'll return to this world. Go to the end of the psalm, where it talks about in Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. This is talking about his coming back to the earth, setting up his kingdom. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And this is referring to what Peter would talk about, that chief shepherd coming back again, where he is one day soon, and we don't know when that is. You've got your vacation plans. You've got plans for a missions trip. You've got plans where you're going to go and see relatives, or you're going to get away from the relatives, whatever your plans are. And you have those God has a plan as well. He has a timetable. We don't know how that timetable works with ours, but this much we're sure, that one day soon he's coming back. And he's going to come back in his glory. He's going to come back in his greatness. And when he comes back, he's going to take us who are born again out of this world to heaven with him. This is future to David. This is future to us. It is that time where he will release us, take us from the presence of sin to live with him in eternity in heaven. And so we have these passages all wound together in this trilogy talking about Messiah coming to forgive, to suffer, Messiah ministering to us as our intercessor, as our mediator right now, Messiah coming as our Redeemer King one day in the future. And David's laid this all out. He talks about it. But in Psalm 23, where we want to focus on, he is writing from that idea, that sheep-shepherd motif. Now, he can do this. He's an experienced shepherd. He spent his childhood out in the fields with his father's few sheep, taking care of them, watching over them. He knows. At the time that he's writing this, he's an older man. In fact, most scholars think this is the time when his son is revolting against him towards the latter part of his 40-year reign. His son Absalom has taken over the city of Jerusalem. David is forced into the wilderness. Maybe it's one of those evenings where he's sitting out there quietly, sitting and looking at the sky and reflecting upon what has happened from childhood all the way. Maybe he's out in some of the very fields that he wandered as a lad, or they remind him of that time. And there he sits there and reflects and thinks about his childhood. There he hears off in the distance in the fields some of the shepherds. His last decades have been basically in the city, in the palace. But now he's out in the wilderness taking him back to his childhood memories, and he's thinking about all that has happened. All that he and God, and in those moments of solitude and quiet in the wilderness, he reflects as he hears the bleeding of the sheep. And thinks about it. You know what? God is just like, to me, like a shepherd. Here I am. I'm wandering the wilderness. And though it's such a terrible thing, I have God on my side. And he pens the words talking about how the Lord is his shepherd. And he's picturing his relationship with God. Though everybody else as a whole, as a nation, it seems like, has turned against him, he still has the Lord. He still has the Lord, and he talks about how God is like a faithful shepherd to a sheep who's out in the wilderness. 
And he describes his relationship as a sheep to the shepherd. And it creates in his spirit an opportunity and the desire to write a song, to sing and to pen a psalm, to, in song and with harp, to praise God. What was it that went through his mind that brought about this praise aspect, this rejoicing in the Lord while he is in the middle of a life and death situation with his son trying to kill him? There's four things that strike me out of verse 1. Just out of verse 1, his relationship with God was very personal. He says, I am thrilled because my relationship with God is very personal. The words are, are so profound and so simple. The Lord, my shepherd. When he starts writing this out, you and I remember he's writing in his own tongue, Hebrew tongue. And so we have to get a little bit of a glimpse of the way he laid out the words. The way he laid out the words, it's very emphatic. It's the emphasis is, the Lord, my shepherd, is the intensity. That I, me, not, not a whole group of us, not my mom and dad, not my family, not you know, the group that's with me of the soldiers and the, and the guards. He says, God is mine. The Lord is my shepherd. And he uses the title that's the personal name for God. He uses the Yahweh, the Jehovah, the I Am talking and saying, hey, this is, this is the one that's my shepherd. The one who introduced himself by saying, I am the eternal one. I am the self-sufficient one. I am the everlasting one. By simply using that term, I am, when he introduced himself to Moses back at the burning bush. And Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? He says, just tell him, I am Yahweh, Jehovah in, the, in, our, in our more modern tongue. He's just telling them that that's who, that's who sent you. And, and everybody understood, this is, this is descriptive of one who is above all of us. A one who doesn't need the air, the food, doesn't need the sleep, doesn't need the parents, doesn't need the family, doesn't need the social aspect. He is so self-existing and self-independent. He is the one who is so powerful he can create, he can make a bush burn without consuming it. He is never dependent upon anybody else. He never needs to run to a doctor. He never needs to look into a retirement plan. He can provide for himself and for everybody else for that matter. He is the great one. He is the creator. And David is sitting there and saying, Yahweh, my shepherd. It's an amazing thought to him that he has a personal relationship with this God. Now, I remind you, that for you and me in this day and age, this is the title that Jesus often referred to himself and others did too. To take the name of Yahweh. Take the name of I Am. And so as we think in our relationship with God slash Jesus today, we remember that he is the self-existent one. He is the eternal one. He is the all-powerful one. He is the sustainer of creation, as Colossians talks about. He is my shepherd. An amazing thought that what he is doing and saying is that he's the shepherd and we are the sheep. Such a simple truth. But we understand from a shepherd's perspective, back in those days, it might help us to appreciate what we've got. Shepherds back in those days, they had a, a bonding relationship with their animals. Uh, maybe I can make this comparison. Okay, some of you, a number of you, you have pets whether they be dogs or cats or hamsters or fish. You have whatever pet. The dogs and the cats fit into this category where you bond with them. That for some of you, they become a part of your family. Those who don't have pets and who aren't inclined don't fully understand that sometimes those pets become part of the group. That you really focus on them, that you pay attention. You know that they're not people, but you have a feeling towards them. You have a, a bond with them. Shepherds in the Old Testament had more of that inclination that they were very concerned. They would dedicate their lives to these sheep. Much more than you and I would see here in America where there's a, a corral, where there's a, a barn building and the people do other jobs or they do other things. Shepherds would dedicate their entire waking hours to taking care of their sheep when they needed to be taken care of. They would do their, their time with them because they were so important. In fact, Jesus talks about that whole shepherd concept and he even says that, hey, there are times when the shepherd is willing to die for his sheep. 
and he describes himself as the good shepherd that he would lay down his life. David, when he is as a young boy and he's going to face Goliath, you have that situation where the king says, you can't go out there and face Goliath. What are you doing? And David reminds him or tells him, he says that, you know, I faced a bear, I faced a lion for the sheep that were my father's because they were mine. I was their shepherd and I had an obligation to them. And later on in David's life, when David falls into his sin and takes another man's wife, the prophet comes to him and gives him a, a parable, a story, and uses normal life that David accepts. David doesn't re- say, oh, this is fanciful. David says, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I can see it happening. And Nathan, the prophet, tells a story about how there's a, there's a rich man that has a whole bunch of sheep, and there's this one poor slob that only has one. And that poor slob that only had one, that sheep, that lamb, he raised in his family. He named him. He ate from his plate. He drank from his cup. And it says he was even as a daughter to him. The the family was very attached. And the rich man comes and takes the one poor, the one man, the poor man's sheep and sacrifices it for the guest. Doesn't use any of his flock, but he takes from the one. And David realizes that 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 could happen. He, He responds and doesn't say, oh, you know, you're telling a, a fib, you're doing a mythological story. He says, that man should be punished for taking the one that wasn't his when he had so much. And Nathan points his finger and says, you're the man. You had all of this in the palace, but you took one man's wife. And David realizes from a real life story that he was a poor shepherd. And he's convicted by that. But his experience has taught him years later that this is, this is the way shepherds operate. Shepherds can become very attached to the sheep. They can have feelings for those sheep. In fact, Jesus says in the New Testament that they name their sheep. And so you have those flocks and they have them there and they're, they're really focused on their animal. And he says, when I think about this, when I look at this, What I'm doing is I'm taking from life experience that I've experienced, that I've seen other people do, and I think this is how God is to me. God is that committed shepherd. I am his sheep. The profoundness of it kind of escapes us because we just don't relate to that culture as much. And I'm trying to give a picture, but I'm failing. To give you the sense of how important this was and how tied they were to those sheep. And David says... This is really important. I have a sheep-shepherd relationship. Yahweh, my shepherd. Now David, David is amazed by that. That he breaks out in song because of that. But he's not the only one who has that relationship. You know, the reason we can sing this psalm, the reason that we quote it so much, is because we understand the words of Jesus given generations later. That Jesus makes it clear that David wasn't the only one that was going to have this type of relationship. Jesus predicted it. He says, I know my sheep, the big group. And I'm going to, he says, and, I, and they know me, a big group. And he says, I have others that will come into this flock as he spoke about it even further. That he was going to increase this flock, which would have that same personal relationship with him. And so you and I sit here today, and we wonder at times, that's cool, that's great for David, but does God really care for me the way the shepherd cared for the sheep in the Old Testament? Does God really care about my problems? Does God even notice me? Does God know that I'm struggling with work or school? Does God know that that we've got bills that are piling up? Does God know that we've got family issues Does God know that I've been neglected or forgotten by parents who have left me? And I'm all by myself, so it seems. I don't have the friends that I thought I had. And and they've turned... Do I, can I, be one of those sheep that the shepherd notices? Or I'm one of those that's kind of in the corner and he doesn't care about. And yet the shepherd of of the Bible days, that even if one went astray, they would leave the 99 and go after that one. Because they were important. You say, but I don't feel important. Let me see if I can demonstrate how God feels about you. You say, I'm one in several hundred. And then when you walk out of here, you feel like you're even in one in thousands. And you say, in America, there's 327 million peoples, and I'm just one of them. Does God notice me? Let me pause and remind you. God even knows the number of hairs on your head. 
Your beautician doesn't know that. God takes that much notice of you in the middle of 327 million people. When there's seven and a half billion on the planet, God knows about you. He knows your cares, your thoughts. You say, yeah, but God is a busy person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now think about this. When we start expanding where we are in light of the, you know, the solar system, the universe, okay, we're kind of small, okay? We're hidden behind there somewhere is Lebanon, PA, okay? And this is, this is just the planets around us. And the God who takes care of all this is watching you, is concerned about you this morning. And, and we back up and say, okay, let's compare us to our son. Yeah, it's pretty big. This is the God who made this with, made all of this with just a word. And he knows you by name. When we span out a little bit further and say, oh, there's our sun and there's some of the other stars in our system. The, you know, the earth isn't even on here anymore when you do this scale. And we go a little bit bigger to what we know as being the largest stars that man has seen. And we say, we're there somewhere. There's, there's not even a dot for us. You know, they're on planet earth, but God knows me? Can, can I put it in the way the psalm says, talking about God's greatness? When it comes to the solar system. He says he tells the number of the stars. None of us can. He tells the number of the stars. He calls them all by their names. An amazing, amazing thought that beyond our comprehension. This is God who knows all about the the entire creation that he has. That great is the Lord of great power. His understanding is infinite. We understand. It's amazing when you look at the solar system. The solar system declares the glory of God. How great and powerful he is. And yet, you know what's on the two sides of these verses that talk about his majesty and how he cares for the universe? Watch what the psalmist wrote. He heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. The Lord lifts up the meek. He defends them. God cares for us. This God of majesty, this God of might, this God of greatness... This God who keeps everything in place and knows everything that we can't even see, but he knows them and names them. He knows my name. He knows what few hairs are on my head. He knows what I have need of next week. He knows all of our cares, and he says, my grace is sufficient in time of need. No wonder David praised the shepherd God that he was serving still cared for him in the wilderness. And he says, and I have a relationship with him. I know him personally, and he personally knows me. And he breaks out and prays, but that's not the only reason. He describes this shepherd-sheep idea, and he says, not only is my relationship one that's very personal, my relationship with him is perpetual. It is never-ending. The wording he uses, and if you look at your, your English, the Lord is my shepherd, most of you will note that in your translations, the is is in italics. Because in the Hebrew, there is no verb. The Lord, my shepherd, literally is what it says. But the idea is that this is timeless. There is no limit on this relationship. There isn't a, he doesn't have a ticket with God that his ride with God only lasts three minutes and he's done and somebody else takes the place. He is saying, I have this ongoing perpetual relationship with God. In fact, he talks about in the words that he's going to use later on, he says such as, I shall never want. It's very clear in the original language, there is never going to be a time where I want. He's going to take care of me. He talks about he will lead me over and over and over again beside the still waters, which we'll get into some of those next week. His point is, this relationship that I can have with God, that I have because I have called upon him to be my savior, this is a perpetual relationship. It is not limited. God is not going to break it off. God is not going to stop it. God is not going to say, you stink. By the way, sheep stink. In the Bible days, the condition of the sheep that we're talking about aren't like the cute little lambs that when we have our reenactment and Boyd and Judy get a lamb or two, they sit outdoor and Judy holds this lamb and people can cut up, come up and say, oh, how cute, and you know, pet that thing. And we say, oh, they're so... 
Sheep in the ancient Near East, sheep in the Middle East, they weren't that cute and cuddly. In fact, there are terms that they use for them. They describe them as stinky. They stench. There's, there's a strong odor from those sheep. They lack personal cleanliness. The sheep in those Middle Eastern areas, they are not like your cat that licks itself and licks itself and washes itself to the point of irritation to others. Sheep don't do that. Sheep get the burrs, they get the, they get the bugs, they get the flies, they get the stench, and they don't clean themselves. Okay? They're not that type of an animal. And yet, David is writing and saying, I'm like a sheep sometimes. Sometimes like a sheep, I'm pretty stinky. Sometimes like a sheep, you know, all my, my righteousness is as filthy rags. Literally dung-filled rags. You know, excrement-filled rags that, that aren't attractive. And yet the shepherd is drawn to me because of his commitment. And David is saying, he, you know, God doesn't cut me off because of my condition. God doesn't cut me off because of my conduct. I have a perpetual relationship with him. The Lord, my shepherd. And now think about who is writing this. Think about what he's describing. He, throughout the Bible, we have description of sheep. And some will say that they're not a smart animal. That is true. The Bible describes the sheep as having a tendency to wander off, to just drift off, not to get to a safer spot. In fact, most of the time they drift off into more danger. They don't sense it. They don't see it. And so they're not an animal that, that you know, is going to move away from, uh, from some region that is dangerous. Oh, oh, wait, those rocks up there, I could fall down, I'll stay away. No, just the opposite. Time and again, the shepherds will say how the sheep get into those crags and put themselves in precarious situations. And the scriptures even describes, it says, we are like sheep. We go astray. We don't go where the shepherd wants. In fact, Jesus and others in the Old Testament, they describe sheep who, do, when they're without a shepherd, they tend to get into problems without somebody supervising them. That's us. That's us. We are sheep. We tend to go our way. We, we wander off into sin. We, we, we go against what God has laid out for us. That's true of all of us. That's true of the human race. We get ten commandments and we violate all of them. And most of us have violated most all of them to some degree. That's just our tendency. That's who we are. We are like sheep who go astray. And yet the shepherd is committed to us. The shepherd is one who says, I want a relationship with you. I will come after you. I will hunt you down. If you're wandering away, I'll follow you into a church building. And if you're the only one there who has never accepted me as Savior, I will seek after you. I will speak to your heart. I will try to get you back into my fold. Because I care for you. Do you remember who's writing this? This is the man who wandered off into adultery. This is a man who wandered into murder. This is a man who who'd failed to train his kids and to stop them from doing what's wrong. He, he is an individual that we would say he's got a lot of blemishes in his character. He's got a lot of things that he wouldn't want to put out on his Facebook and say, you know, I did this, I did this. He'd be embarrassed about those things. And yet he says... All those things I reflect on right now in the middle of this wilderness, that I did this, I did this, I did this, I did that, and I'm not proud of them, but this much I know, the Lord is my shepherd. He has not forsaken me. Your sins and your iniquities, what does God promise? I will remember. That's the shepherd we're talking about this morning. The shepherd who has great commitment and compassion for us. And Jesus says, that's who I am. I will go after the one that's wandering because I care. David's writing and he's, he's implying here that the shepherd doesn't leave me because of my conduct. He doesn't leave me because of my condition. He doesn't forsake me because I'm a demanding animal. Sheep are demanding animals. The shepherds in those days, it was a lot of work. It wasn't like you put them in a pen or you take them down to somebody else to take care of them. No, no, no. You were probably, unless you were really rich and could hire some hirelings, you were going to be really committed. Your commitment was going to be 24-7. You didn't have the holidays. Who's going to take care of your sheep on the holiday? You didn't have this, this opportunity to just go and do your own thing. If you look at the pictures and think, oh, well, they just kind of, there was wadis and rivers all over the place. You've not been in the Middle East. They had to find water for their animals. 
And sometimes they had to dig out in cisterns or in rocks. They had to remove things so that they could find a spring. Or if there was muddy water flowing, they had to dam it up so that there could become some still water where the sediment would go down and they would get to drink. They had to go and take care of these sheep with brambles. The sheep were known to have a lot of flies all over them in their nose and in their ears, and they had to be treated on a regular basis. There was a lot of work that had to be done with these sheep. There was the shepherd at night, if he's out in the pastures and out in the wilderness, he had to create a corral for the sheep at night. Pile up the rocks. If it was close to his house, he had to make the fence. And then he would sleep. Where there's an opening in that fence, he would sleep across and put himself at risk to protect his sheep. Jesus builds upon it. There's the cleaning. There's the shearing. There's the treatment. There's the care of your pasture. You had to make sure that there were green pastures that could require that you had to take care of some of the land. You had to irrigate it. You had to get rid of some of the thistle and the brush. There was a lot of work to taking care of these sheep. And the shepherd David says he didn't leave. And David knew this. He experienced it. He says, God doesn't leave me because I'm a demanding person. That I'm a wanting person. That I'm an individual that needs a lot of care. That I, that I, I have a lot of things in my life. And then he talks about, or implies when he talks about this, this idea of the Lord being the shepherd, implied in all of this. Oh, by the way, in Genesis, Laban at one time is having conversation with Jacob. And Jacob is talking about how he, even though he was a rich man, how his sheep demanded so much of him. He talks about being out there in, in a drought season, being out there at frost by night. But all of it, he says, giving up sleep. Why? Because he was a good shepherd. That he was taking care of them. And David says, that's the way God is for me. God stays awake for me. God endures a lot. Even though I'm a demanding individual. And even though there's dangers. Oh, and there's so many dangers to taking care of the sheep. So many dangers that Jesus talked about. That, that David knew about. There was the droughts. There was the famines. There was the thieves. There's a, there's a fellow who writes about this. He's got a commentary. And his name is John Davis, a seminary professor from a number of years ago. And he writes about this whole idea of thieves. He spent uh, one summer working with the sheep uh, for a certain fellow there in Israel, in the Palestinian region, so that he could just learn and get an idea before he wrote this commentary. One of the real dangers to the shepherd and his flocks is the thief who has roamed the rugged hills of Palestine from the most ancient of times. Muhammad, his friend, remarked how a number of times the thieves are one of the greatest of his fears. The shepherd is very vulnerable because of the deep wadis. That's those, those ruts in the ground, that, those trenches in the ground. He says the wadis and the passes through which he must go. Raids on flocks of sheep and goats were still common in the eastern deserts of Jordan when I was there. Often this leads to open warfare between the various nomadic groups. W.M. Thompson recalls in this account of once when he was there. And when the thief and the robber came, and, and come they do, the faithful shepherd is often to put his life in his own hands to defend his flock. I have known more than in one case in which he literally laid down his life in the contest. A faithful fellow last spring between Tiberius and Tabor, instead of fleeing, actually fought three Bedouin robbers until he was hacked in pieces by their knives, and he died among the sheep that he was defending. Then back to Davis's writings. A number of Arabs have related the grim stories of the death of shepherds in the wilderness. Some were shot by the marauding bandits who would take the number of sheep desired and then flee unchallenged. This fact became a depressing reality for my friend Muhammad. He showed me a place next to a valley where he had personally covered over the remains of a shepherd who had been shot in defense of his sheep, etc., etc., etc. The point is, they are real dangers. In the Bible days, David's writing, he's saying, this is my shepherd. He would not flee me because of the dangers of the wild animals, just like David didn't. And so he's got this confidence in this shepherd, and he is saying, you know, my shepherd is not like the hireling that Jesus said would flee. And he is responding in praise to God to say, my God, this God who I serve, he is like a shepherd to me who am a sheep, who goes astray, who needs a lot of help, who has a lot of dangers, he's committed to me on a personal basis, on a perpetual basis. And then he talks about how this shepherd of his provides for him, makes provisions, a relationship that benefits the sheep. And he talks about how I shall not lack. That's the Hebrew for the words is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Literally, I shall never, ever lack. It's the idea that you're always going to have what is most needed. The idea is very simple, that this God of all resources, who is so, so 
self-sufficient, is able and willing to provide everything you need. And we know the rest of the text. How he provides the food. How he provides the protection. How he provides the water. How he provides the rest. How he gives the, everything that's needed. The correction, the assistance. Now, does that mean that you and I should run to this text and say we're all going to be rich? That God's going to give us everything we desire? Well, we know that's not true. We know that in the New Testament, the peoples there, they suffered. We know that the scripture says all that will live godly will suffer persecution. There will be difficulties. There will be trials. We understand that. We understand that what he's talking about in this text is that even though David is a fugitive, he's lost his palace, he's lost all that is dear to him, except for his life and some of his loyal troops, he is saying, I'm a fugitive. He's saying, my God is going to take care of what I need. He is going to give me whatever I need. He's going to provide for me and meet the real needs and provide for them. God God in Ezekiel talks about the bad shepherds. He's talking about preachers. He says those bad shepherds, what they didn't, they didn't take care of their flocks. And he says how they, they use the flocks, they abuse the flocks. And as you read through in Ezekiel 34 verses 3 and 4, he talks about how, how they took advantage of them, that they were all about themselves and they didn't care for the flocks. And then in that same text, he says, but not me. I am the good shepherd. I will feed them in good pastures. I will help them to have the fold in the high mountains. They will lie down in the, in the good fold. They'll, they'll have feed. They'll be in rich pastures. His point is that I will take care of my sheep. I as God, as Jehovah, will provide what they really, really, really need. And he is committing himself, and David is confident of that. What is that need? I'll go back to Davis's. Davis's comments, and maybe he can do better than I in trying to explain it to you. David's final assertion in Psalm 23, 1 is instructive. Literally translated, I will not have need. The Hebrew word comes from the root word haser, meaning to lack, need, or be lacking. The import of this word is illustrated nicely in language in Psalm 34. The young lions lack and are hungry, but those that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. The Lord reminded the children of Israel that in the wilderness they lacked nothing. He gave them the promise that their new land would not lack anything that they needed. Anyone who has the Lord as his personal shepherd will never be in need. The Hebrew is emphatic at this point. But exactly what is the sense? Are we to conclude that everything a believer desires will be his? It's doubtful that one can claim this in essence of the expression in the New Testament that says a man's life consists not in the abundance of things that he possesses. What are we to say to those poor, wretched, yet godly believers who suffered poverty through much of their lifetimes? Or what are those missionaries who have experienced incredible destitution and poverty as a result of their evangelistic efforts? No. This phrase is not a promise that anything a believer wants will be his. We are reminded by the Apostle Paul that those who live godly will suffer difficulties. David then is asserting that we will not lack anything that we need within the framework of God's will for our lives. In other words, there is nothing that I will lack as a child of God that will be necessary for my spiritual welfare and growth. The good shepherd knows precisely what I as his sheep need for strength, endurance, and fruitfulness. And he has the ability to provide with abundance. That's the one we're worshiping this morning. That's the God that we sit here and we talk about and we lose the sense because we, we, it is so foreign to us, the shepherd sheep idea. But what we need to do is we need to just stop and think. This is what David was thrilled about. This idea that his Lord, he had a personal time with him, one that was perpetual, one that made provisions. David realizes something here. This relationship has a purpose. The Lord my shepherd means I am his sheep. He is committed to me, to my care, to your care, because he values us. There's nothing in us that drew his attention, that, that you know, said that stirred him up, but from his heart, God so loved us. Why? I can't explain and neither can you. All we can say is we don't deserve it, but we are thankful that he does love us. 
He is committed to us, but we dare not fail to understand this part. That we are sheep because every shepherd has a plan for those sheep. Those sheep are to produce. Those sheep are supposed to ultimately benefit or bring glory to the shepherd. Now we understand how that happened in Bible days. What they would do is they would get the the fleece from the sheep. They could get some of the nourishment from the sheep. They could even use them for sustenance. We understand all that. But those sheep, they were cared for. They were taken so that they could somehow bring back to the shepherd. And the shepherd uh, that we're worshiping this morning, he has a desire for us. He has a plan for us, a plan to grow, a plan to produce. The Lord my shepherd means I'm his sheep. I am not his boss. I am not his master. I am not the one who tells him what to do. I, as the sheep, am to do what he wants. He leads. He guides. He takes care of me. I'm not here this morning to do the shepherd a favor. We're here this morning because this is what the shepherd wants us to do. He leads us to a place of worship. We're not here because this will just fulfill some obligation and get him off our back. We're here because if we have the right spirit, this is the shepherd's desire this day. That's our relationship. That's our privilege to be able to serve the shepherd, to be able to do for him. So we have to ask ourselves some questions. Are we growing the way he wants us to grow? Are we maturing in our spiritual life? He just didn't bring us into his flock so we could stay lambs all of our life. He wants us to become adults. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants us to feed on his word, are you? Have you shown greater growth in areas of your life like patience, contentment, holiness. We as part of this flock, we're supposed to be expanding this flock. Sheep bear sheep, not the shepherd. We're supposed to be increasing this flock. When's the last time you shared the word of God? When's the last time, because of the care of the shepherd, the feeding of the shepherd, that you gave out a tract? That you told somebody else? about Christ? When's the last time you stopped the busyness of your life to say, I need to focus on what the shepherd wants this afternoon? If that means I change my plans, but I go out and minister to somebody, go out and share the word of God, change some of what we have planned and do more of what he wants. Are you producing the sheep fruit, the wool in your life? Are you producing more prayer? Are you producing more forgiveness? Are you producing more peace and gentleness? Are you producing a better marriage? Are you producing greater respect towards your parents? Are you producing worship? Are you serving the body? Are you doing what he's feeding you to do so you can feed others, so you can help others? The sheep's job is to help, to produce is to make sure we're doing sheep stuff at the direction of the shepherd. You and I can stop and say, well, I'm really glad that I'm a part of his flock, but he wants us to fulfill a purpose. That purpose starts with making sure you have a relationship with him. Join me as I close in John chapter 10, where Jesus picks up this motif. In John chapter 10 of the New Testament, Jesus is talking about our relationship with him. And, and we'd be remiss not to point this out. John chapter 10 is the text where Jesus picks up and says, shepherd-sheep relationship, I'm the shepherd that David was talking about. And he talks in the middle of verse 7. He says, I am the door to the sheepfold. I'm the way you get in and out. All that ever came before me, they were, those were thieves and robbers, all those religious leaders. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man would enter into God's fold, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. His idea is that Jesus is your Savior. You have to have a relationship that starts with, what have you done with Jesus? Have you asked him 
to give you forgiveness and eternal life. Then he goes on, he talks again about how he is so committed as a shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jump down towards the latter part of the text where he talks about him as the shepherd and we the sheep. He says in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anybody come and pluck them out of my hand. Why? No thief is going to get them. They're mine. They have a perpetual, permanent relationship with me. My Father which gave them me, he says, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. His whole point is that he wants a relationship with you that is going to be personal and permanent or perpetual. Do you have that? Do you as a sheep in God's fold, you've been born again, do you have David's confidence that your God is taking care of you? That he cares for you? Do you this morning have a, have a comfort in your spirit that says, he is a good shepherd to me. He is meeting my needs. Then you and I should respond the way that David responded. Our response should be one of praising to our God. Worshiping him. Thinking about his faithfulness to us. And maybe writing your own psalm this afternoon. Maybe writing your own, in your own journal about the greatness of God. Maybe on your Facebook, giving some tribute to God Almighty for the way he has blessed you. But here as we close, we need to do what one gentleman did. Thomas Chisholm, born in Log Cabin in Kentucky. In poverty. Age 16, becomes a school teacher, teacher, never trained formally, but then he becomes the editor of the newspaper. At age 27, he gets born again. Ten years later, he, he feels called to the ministry. He goes and preaches for one year, preaching the Word of God, telling others about God's greatness, and then his health breaks. For the rest of his life, he's never able to do pastoral ministry. He's able to do part-time work here and there. But he's never able to do his vocational work that he really wanted to do. And yet God used him. God blessed him. And God helped him to, to minister to many people in different roundabout ways. Even though at times he was in hunger. Even though at times he was weak physically. He wrote the words to the song that we want to sing in these next moments. The words to the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Oh God, my Father. He penned the words in praise to his God at the latter part of his life, knowing that his God had been faithful. His God had been providing for him. And he praised him for it. Which should be our spirit as well. Praising our God for what he has done, for the way he has provided. And as we sing this morning, if you are here this morning and you do not know him as your personal Savior, our staff is headed right over to those doors. They'll stand in that hall. They will gladly go into a private room and show you from the Bible what you need to do to make Christ your personal Savior, to have that relationship. You are welcome to do that over these next moments as we sing about the greatness of our God. Go and find Him. Go and meet Him. If you've done that, join me as we sing about His greatness, His goodness.